boom, kaboom, boom, kaboom, In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope, bring your pole oil and rope and try not to go down in a heap. Rob, it's Evil Jeff. Just listened to your last podcast and appreciate you going over the Gary's Appendix. Uh, hadn't seen that particular thing even advertised, so I was totally unaware of it. So thanks for pointing out. And your review was enough for me to say, hey, you know what? I think I, I should go check it out. And probably at least get the first one, make sure I'm not really missing out on something in the future. So thanks for all that. Hopefully uh, we'll get you back on the Discord. You might need to call tech support on that one. Like somebody else, like one of us, <laughs> to come help you. Later. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Down in the Heat podcast. I'm your host, Rob podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast minneapolis the top of the show there you heard the legendary podcaster colin green of spike pit doing my theme song thanks colin i appreciate it and following hard on the heels of colin we have my old podcaster partner for the well for a good part of the bx deep dive evil jeff from the Minions and Musings podcast. Thanks for the call, Jeff. Bring, bring. Hello, tech support for Discord. Can you please help me get back on? Yeah, I don't know what the heck has happened, but... And I haven't tried, honestly, for weeks and weeks. It just... I, I tried, made a concerted effort there for a little while, and it. Um, I don't know what is going on. Uh, maybe I just need to completely, like erase, delete the Discord app, and then reload it or something. But whenever I <clears throat> try and log on, I enter my email account, and then, you know, it asks for a password. I don't know what my password is. I can't find it anywhere. So I click, forgot my password, and then it sends me to some kind of puzzle to prove that I'm not a bot where it has some kind of image and it says, you know, press select every square that contains a bicycle or something. And I do that and then it just kicks me out. So I guess I'm a bot. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it just won't send me the link to reset my password or something because I can't get beyond that stage. And I've you know, I've uh, shown the, the little puzzle thing to Mary and said, all right, am I clicking every box that has a tugboat in it or something or has a stoplight or whatever? And she concurs and says yes, and um, and then it just won't work. So, yeah, that's why I'm not on dis Discord anymore. But, yeah, maybe I just need to delete the app and uh, and reload it or something and but you know if i if i do that and set up a new account and stuff i'll lose all the conversations i previously you know the, the private conversations and stuff um i don't know, i guess that's i i i'd like to have all, all that at my hands or at my fingertips but uh you know say la vie 
So today, uh, there's a, the other thing that uh, Evil Jeff brought up was the Gary's Appendix, and I'm glad that uh, it piqued your interest, and I'll pique it further. There's a Kickstarter going on right now for Gary's Appendix number three, and that is quickly running out. I think it ends on August 10th, 2023, in case you're listening a year from now or something. Um, there's currently 321 backers. It's fully funded. Um, it's the, one of the best things about it is it's due to deliver in October. So, you know, if, if Jeff fulfills this in the time frame that he's planning, you don't have to wait long to get it. So that's, <laughs> that's usually one of my biggest beefs with Kickstarter is you, you back the project and then you don't get anything for six months. Or in the case of some of the things I've backed, two years. Um, <laughs> or you haven't gotten it at all. Um, so, I mean, uh, that's unfair. I, there, most of the things I've, I've backed I've gotten and most of the things I've backed I've gotten in the time frame that was given. But uh, Jeff even has, uh, if you go to the Kickstarter page for this, uh, which you can do by just going to kickstarter.com and searching either for Gary's Appendix or Jeffrey Jones. Um, that should bring it right up, but Gary's Appendix definitely will bring it right up. There's a video flip-through, so he has a mock-up already in his hands, a physical mock-up, and it's a YouTube video or whatever of him just paging through it and showing you exactly what you're getting. And there are options where you can just get a PDF, which is only $3, or you can get the physical copy for $15. And then there are other tiers where you can get the previous issues as well, number one and number two, in either uh, PDF or physical. And he has an, uh, an adventure that he did, Fane of the Fly God, that you can get as well. So, yeah, I backed back this in the physical form. I'm also uh, using the add-on function. I got issue number two, which never was at the source. Uh, so I'm getting issues no number two and three, and I'm getting Fan of the Fly God. So yeah, check it out. Um, in addition to Jeff Jones, this is, so the issue number three is going to be kind of like a Halloween theme, uh, tying with when it's due to release. Um, so a lot of the the themes revolve around horror, um, monsters, uh, undead, death, stuff like that. So that's what the articles are kind of concerning. And the bestiary portion of the of Gary's appendix. <laughs> Gary's appendix should be some kind of relic, shouldn't it? Under glass, you've got this shriveled up, uh, mummified appendix or something of of Gary Gygax and the the Holy Church of Saint. St. Gary uh, has this this relic that has, uh, I don't know, healing powers or something, or powers for time, keeping time, keeping accurate time in your campaign. <laughs> uh, but in so in addition to Jeff Jones, there's also contributions from Dave Semark, Jason Hobbs. <gasps> Jason Hobbs, yes, he's doing the Hodag, which is some kind of Rhinelander, Wisconsin folklore monster. <laughs> Um, Onslaught 6, Zach Goins, who also had contributions in the first Gary's Appendix, as well as Travis Miller, likewise. 
and Adam uh, Kovac. So those are the contributors to Gary's Appendix Number 3. Go check it out. And uh, I really enjoyed Number 1, as evidenced by the fact that I'm back on these. Um, yeah, and you can hear Jeff on RPG Ramblings. Fun podcast to listen to. Um, the other thing that's coming down the pike, which I think will be huge, is the Dolmenwood Kickstarter, which is due to drop on August 9th. And I think there's uh, some really sweet uh, add-ons for that, like uh, a unique dice set. I think if you're... I got some promotional email from um, Exalted Funeral about it, and if you're... If you back a physical cop or physical backing, whatever physical rewards in the first two days, I think you get a free cloth map of Dol- of the Dolmenwood setting. So that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if yet if I'm going to back it or not. I've got so much stuff. Um, you know, I everything that uh, Gavin Norman at Necrotic Gnome puts out is really high quality stuff from like a physical standpoint, especially. Um, and this Dolman Wood stuff is unique. It's not, you know, it's not OSE where it's just a, you know, a reformatting, a re, an updated release, uh, of BX or whatever, or his, his take on AD&D or something. This is, this is a setting with, um, adapted rules from OSE for this kind of dark fairy tale setting. I just don't know if the dark fairy tale setting is something I want to lean into. I think it might be fun to play in. I just don't know if I'm uh, from if I'm in the right headspace to uh, to give it a um, give it its due at the table as a DM. So I don't know if I'm gonna back that. I need to talk to Keith and see if that's something he's interested in or not. Um, but uh, right now I'm hip deep in Planet Eris. And uh, the other thing uh, that this podcast is about, other than uh, informing you about the Gary's Appendix Kickstarter and the upcoming Dolmenwood, is to address calls. And I've got some coming up here from Joe from a Hindsightless podcast. And after him, waiting on deck, are a number of people calling in to talk about uh, treasure placement uh, in BX and AD&D and traps and... Yeah, it's mainly about that, so stay tuned, and take it away, Joe. Welcome to the penthouse, Bendar. Yo, Rob, so I'm going to send this to you by email. Hopefully it'll come through. want to let you know I'm still out here. I'm still listening. Uh, and like Daniel, I've sent you a message or two on Discord, and maybe I'll go back and see if I can find those. But, yeah, so you, a lot of stuff in your latest episode. First off, you talked about how you prefer campaigns over uh one shots in general right if you're gonna play a role-playing game campaigns work better for you i'm i'm in the exact same camp one shots are cool if you want to try out a new system like if i want to try out a new system or something one shots are great but i don't like playing in general i don't like playing one shots i i feel like they're unsatisfying i don't know if i'd rather play a board game as opposed to a one shot but it's close, right? If it was an awesome board game, <laughs> I might choose it, man. So, yeah, I'm right there with you on that. Um, and then as far as the whole advantage, disadvantage and stuff goes, I am 
I'm with you. I'm in the granularity camp. As you know, I'm a Pathfinder dude, very granular. Uh, I like all the bonuses and stuff, but I think you're sort of missing a trick when you talk about advantage and disadvantage because in a lot of systems that use advantage-disadvantage, that's only part of the mechanic. The other part of the mechanic is the difficulty number you have to hit. So that's where the nuance comes in. You're talking about different snakes with different poisons. So one snake could have a higher difficulty number for the save and give you disadvantage on that save, which would make it very tough. Whereas an easier snake, a a snake with less powerful venom, um, would have a lower difficulty number that you have to hit. And maybe, you know, you just roll it normal and not have disadvantage. So that's where the nuance comes in with advantage and disadvantage. It's not just that's the only mechanic. You have to hit that difficulty number so you can raise and lower that difficulty number. Like with your example from hiding behind the wall and the goblins are at long range shooting you, they could have disadvantage, but maybe you'd also get a bonus to your armor class, which that's in the rules and stuff. Uh, But then (laughs) you're talking about the black hack and how you can't run a long-term game with a black hack. I've been saying that for a long time. Jason might call in to talk about how there was a long-running game of the black hack, and to that I would say that that game was hacked to bits and all sorts of stuff were added to the black hack uh, to make it run that long. So, yeah, I agree with you. You can't run a long-running campaign with a black hack. It just doesn't support it. Anyway, man awesome stuff i hope i can figure out how to get this to you take it easy keep up the good work oh and yeah i also want to hear you do your wilderness encounter stuff anyway peace out hey thanks for the call joe always good to hear from you and yeah campaign versus one shot or board game i agree with a lot of your sentiments there it's uh, a one shot could be a pretty good introduction to a game or something um i kind of feel like you need two or three at least though to really get a good feel for a game because and I suppose it depends on how long the session is too and how much um you really are interacting with the 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 rules of the game itself but especially in a role-playing game or one that's kind of a level-based game you don't even really get a taste for many of the rules that you that you wouldn't get until you're a little higher level and stuff uh, without playing it for a really long time. So while a one-shot might give you a good taste for something that's like a skill-based game like Traveler or BRP or something like that, for various level-based games like D&D and stuff, I don't know if it really would give you a good flavor. And like something like DCC too, I think just how how much the outliers of various tables and stuff come into play um, could really impact your your impression of the game, too. If the dice come up wild and wooly, um, it might turn you off. It might turn you on to the game. And if, the, if nothing really all that bizarre happens, it might leave you with like, oh, what's all the big to do about with DCC? It seemed like just a D and D game or something. Um, so if you don't have like corruption or crits and fumbles or anything like that or mighty deeds coming up and stuff, it might. Or if you just play the funnel, 
which I think um, is uh, sadly kind of like what a lot of people just have experience or their exposure to DCC is just from the dumb funnel where you're basically playing zero level schlubs and you're not even really using what makes DCC unique. Um, yeah. So, so I think one shots, um, can be a good introduction to a game or at least a taste of the game, but I don't think you really get a good feel for a lot of games unless you play it you know, a dozen times or more. Um, and the, the advantage that something like a board game has is if, at least if you choose a board game that you can complete in an hour, you actually get to complete it, you know, and you, for learning, like exposure to a new board game, if, you know, you play a, f a full game of it, you, you might not get a, com you know, a big picture, the same type of things, that can happen in a role-playing game where, you know, you get someone gets extraordinarily lucky or or unlucky. You know, it it might color your impression of the game or something if there are random elements to it and stuff. But um, but I think uh, with a board game, you can experience the full gamut of the game itself because they're usually designed to be played in one sitting, whereas a role-playing game is generally are designed to be kind of this open-ended experience. So. I think they just naturally lend themselves to long-term play, whereas board games are are generally intended to be a one-sitting game. So I think they're they're better because of that for just like a, a one-off type of thing than a, than a role-playing game. Um, advantage, disadvantage, I totally hear what you're saying, and I understand the whole difficulty class thing um, that's present in, in, well, it sounds like almost every version of, official D&D and Pathfinder from third edition on, they use the, the difficulty class to modify things. And I'm not really sure where advantage disadvantage came into play. I think it just came in to those games in fifth edition. So yeah, that works fine in games that have a difficulty class, but what I'm specifically talking about are games like black hack. Uh, and I should specify black hack first edition. I kind of, uh, I don't know what how the rules changed in second edition, and maybe they address some of the issues I have with it. Um, but in Black Hack first edition, all it is is advantage dis disadvantage. There's no difficulty class coming into into play. You're just rolling against an attribute, and um, and you have advantage if it's you know a situation that you'd have advantage right <laughs> or disadvantage respectively. So. It is the end all, and I and in other kind of rules light indie games that I've seen, the same thing applies. It's just this all or nothing kind of approach. So there is no granularity. And you know, if you had a table full of people that just were completely fine with that, you know, or that's their jam, you could probably have you know a long game or something with it. But I, you know. But it's all the other stuff that I think you'd need to inject into the Black Act to make it a long-term game, you know, because there's no exploration rules or anything like it. I mean, you can make stuff up just with attribute checks, I suppose, but there's no rules for, like, overland travel or... Um, so I, th I think you'd either have to... You'd have to create your own um, or 
or lean into another game like BX or AD&D or something to, to get the rules for that. So yeah, I just, I don't see it as a complete game. It's something that you can, it could maybe be the skeleton for something that you flesh out. Um, but, uh, but it's not really in my mind a, a complete game. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, oh, and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do, it sounds like there's quite a few people that are interested in me kind of going through my procedures for, um, detailing, uh, like an adventure locale in a wilderness area and just kind of how I go about setting up wilderness areas and stuff. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely do that here in the future. Um, or, you know, OSR October, if I do that again, is coming up. Maybe that could be like a long running series in October or something. I don't know. I'll have to mull around with that. I do have a vacation planned in October. So unless I record it, episodes in advance, I'm not going to do an everyday kind of thing like I did last year. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe that could be one of the days of the week in October where I just, and so instead of having like some kind of two hour show (laughs) where I do that, I could release like five episodes that are a half hour or something or 15 minutes or whatever. And maybe it wouldn't be quite as uh, daunting an undertaking to listen to. Anyway, let me know what you think about those ideas. And now we'll turn to the other big topic um, here with that most of the the rest of the calls are mainly leaning into, and that's treasure placement and and whatnot in in your classic D&D games. So first up, I think, is the Pink Phantom from Phantom Thoughts. One last note, I should mention that Shadow Dark, which uses advantage-disadvantage, also has difficulty numbers, from what I understand. So, yeah, just want to clarify that. Shadow Dark looks like a, a workable system. I just don't like how they do thieves. Hey Rob, the Pink Phantom here. I was listening to your episode, Gary's Appendix. Uh, I, I thought it was, I got a little chuckle when you talked about how the AD&D treasure for monsters was a little more straightforward than BX. Uh, you know, I found that the AD&D listings of treasure types, when there's multiple, and at the beginning it'll say individual, and the end it'll say in layer, and there'll be several in between, and there's no indication of, of where that split is usually it's just commas separating them but occasionally they'll put a semicolon in there but it won't be where you think it is because you end up with what looks like an individual treasure on the layer side or what looks like a layer treasure on the individual side so i thought that was interesting uh and i also would would be interested in hearing your procedures for uh uh developing a wilderness that would be wilderness setting wilderness campaign that would be interesting to hear so thank you for for your podcast Hey, Pink Phantom, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I never really noticed that uh, in the Monster Manual, and I know there's different printings of the Monster Manual. I don't know if the listings for treasure are different from printing to printing, if they they did any kind of, you know, cleaning up of any issues, or if it was just 
print it again, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I, I paged through the monster manual to see kind of what you were talking about. And there is definitely like an inconsistency in punctuation. I think it's pretty easy to parse out once you realize, you know, in both BX and AD&D and the treasure type tables, um, there are some that just say, you know, two to eight per individual under gold or something rather than thousands or whatever. So it spells out per individual. So it's pretty easy to parse out which are individual and which aren't. And then, um, in some cases, the monster entry, it's very clear, uh, especially via the punctuation, what's, what's individual, what's layer. And in others, yeah, by looking at the treasure types, you can f figure it out pretty readily. One thing I did <laughs> by by looking at it, um, uh, the centaur in AD and D. Wow, they're kind of uh, they've got a lot of treasure. <laughs> I never would have thought. Um, so the the reason I say AD and D is a little more clear is in BX. They're you know like especially all the the humanoids here your orcs and goblins and kobolds and bugbears and whatnot. Um, in AD&D, all of them have like an individual uh, treasure. So if you just run across five uh, hobgoblins, you'll, it'll give you what kind of treasure you'd, you'd get off their uh, corpses if you, if you slay this uh, hobgoblin foraging party or something. And then it has a separate entry for the lair. In BX, it does that with some. It'll have it like a treasure, an individual treasure type. And then in parentheses, it will have a treasure type that is more of a lair treasure type. So something like the goblins have R, and then in parentheses, C. But then hobgoblin just has D. There is no individual treasure type. And likewise, orcs are that way. And, uh, let's see, kobolds are like the goblins. They have an individual treasure type, and then in parentheses, a lair treasure type. So, uh, so, so for f some of the humanoid monsters, the things that you generally run into, you know, multiples of, you're not just facing usually a single kobold or something. Um, sometimes it's delineated, and other times it's... It's not. So, I mean, do hobgoblins just not carry any treasure? It's just always back at their lair? Uh, I suppose you could read that into it and say that's that's uh, some of the implied setting in the game or something, that individual hobgoblins don't have treasure. It's all some kind of communal treasure or it's all in the hands of the, the hobgoblin chieftain or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that's why... I. I was commenting that I thought the AD&D treasure rules were a little bit more clear in that regard. So, uh, and yeah, again, uh, the, uh, the upcoming episode on fleshing out the wilderness, I'll, I'll get it off the ground at some point here. So thanks for the call. Moving along to, I think, Taylor from the Whispering GM, formerly Cleric's Wear Ringmail podcast. Hey Rob, this is Taylor from the Cleric Square Ringmail, or recently Whispering GM podcast. Like Daniel, I use the unguarded treasure type if there's a monster and it says nil for its treasure type. 
Um, and regarding traps, I don't think I've ever been told to do this, but if there is no monster and the room is trapped, unguarded treasure just seems like the logical fallback. For special rooms, I'm also a little generous. I treat those as traps uh, for the purposes of putting treasure in it. So I, uh, I guess I just like my players to level up. <laughs> uh, hopefully I'll see you back on Discord one of these days. I keep pinging you to put notifications on your phone to, so, you don't, uh, so you don't get lonely without us. Hey, stay safe up there, brother. Delvon. Hey, Taylor. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And I don't know how best to approach this um, because these upcoming calls from, well, the one we heard from uh, Taylor, the upcoming call from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and then some calls from uh, a new caller, Dark Fluid, from the uh, Audio Dungeon Discord are all talking about kind of like the, the placement of treasure. Specifically, we're talking about BX here, or OSE. Uh, and OSE changes the treasure type, like the lettering and stuff. It, it keeps everything consistent with BX, but it changes the, the letter types a little bit. Um, I don't know if that was too... Um, to, for copyright purposes and stuff, but I don't know what the best approach is here to answer it, but maybe, if you'll bear with me, the best approach is just to kind of read through, do a read-through on all the places where it talks about placing treasure in BX. And I don't know, if you're not at all interested in this, uh, this might be a good place to just end the show you don't want to hear me droning on about some of these things, but um, it is kind of a an interesting topic to me. So here on page B30, in the introduction to monsters, it's ba it's essentially talking about all the the little the terminology that it uses to describe all the monsters and the monster stat blocks. And under under treasure type, treasure type gives the letter of the treasure type, which can then be used to determine any treasure in the monster's possession using the treasure type table on pages B45 through 46. Not all monsters have treasure. Unintelligent animals, emphasize, rarely have treasure, though some animals might collect bright, shiny objects, and any meat-eating creature might have recently killed someone who was carrying treasure. In general, treasure is usually found in a monster's lair, parentheses, home. Wandering monsters are therefore less likely to be carrying treasure than monsters which have homes in the dungeon. All right, so that's the entry under um, from in the monster section. Then there's a whole section on treasure, part seven, treasure. The coins, gems, jewelry, and magic items that a party finds during an adventure is known as treasure. Wealth coins, gems, jewelry, and other items of value is worth experience points to the player and allows the player to pay for better equipment, hire more retainers, and purchase special services from higher level spellcasters, for example. Magic items will usually give a character abilities not normally possessed and are useful on later adventures. Treasure is normally found in the layers of monsters, but may be paid to a character by a high level NPC for performing a mission or job. Treasures are determined randomly or chosen by the DM. 
The DM should always determine the contents of a large treasure hoard before play in order to determine how best to hide and protect the treasure from theft. And if magic items are present, the DM may want to allow the monsters to use the items, such as a bugbear using a sword plus one. Random treasures. To determine the monster's treasure at random, the DM uses the following step-by-step -step procedure. Number one, find the treasure type in the monster description. Find the same letter on the treasure type table. Hereafter, that line will be used to find the actual treasure. Number two, read across the treasure type line to find which types of treasure, treasure may be present. Each type will have a percentage and a range. If the DM rolls on a D percentile, a number equal to or less than the percentage given, that type of treasure is present. The DM should roll for each percentage and make a note of what types are present. Number three, roll dice, the type depends on the range given, to find the amount of each type of treasure found in step two above, which is, pre which is present. Number four, if any magic items are present, the magic items subtables, page B46, must be used to find the actual types. All right, so that's random treasures. Place treasures. The DM may choose treasures instead of rolling for them randomly, or may choose a result if rolls give too much or too little treasure. The cho choices should be made carefully, since most of the experience the characters will get from uh, most of the experience the characters will get will be from treasure, usually three quarters or more. It will often be easier for the DM to decide how much experience to give out, considering the size and levels of the experience of the party, and place the treasures to give this result. However, the monsters should be tough enough to make sure that the characters earn their treasure. All right, adjustments to treasure. Treasures A through O are large and generally only used for use when large numbers or fairly difficult monsters are encountered. The layers of most human-like monsters contain at least the number of creatures given as the wilderness number appearing, the number in parentheses, so in the monster section, the, num the number appearing. An encounter with less than a full layer should yield less treasure. On the other hand, if one to four is the number appearing, even one will have the normal amount of treasure and no adjustment is necessary. So if you encounter a lone dragon, you still use treasure type H or something, even though there's only one rather than three or four. The DM may create treasure types other than the ones listed. Some other valuable items could be rugs, wall hangings, wire wines, silverware, and other kitchen items, or even animal skins. The DM should give each special item a value in gold pieces, and if the optional encumbrance rules are used, an encumbrance. To aid the DM, the average values in gold pieces of each treasure type are given below. These averages do not include the possible magic in the treasures. After rolling for treasures, the DM may refer to this list and see whether the treasure is larger or smaller than the average and may then adjust the treasure as desired. So that was a reading from page B45 in the treasure section. Last, we come to in the DM section, where we're creating, where they're giving a procedure for uh, designing a scenario and stocking a dungeon. Under E, stock the dungeon. To stock a dungeon means to fill in the general details, such as monsters, treasures, and traps. 
Special monsters should be first placed in the appropriate rooms, along with special treasures. The remaining rooms can be stocked as the DM wishes. If there is no preference as to how certain rooms are stocked, the following system may be used. Roll a d6 for contents, and the ro then roll a second uh, roll on the second table for treasure, according to the result of the first roll. A yes result means that treasure is there, along with whatever is indicated by the first roll. So on the first roll, 1 to 2, this is a d6, yields monster. 3 is a trap, 4 is special, and 5 to 6 is empty. And then the second die roll, um, I know, uh, a 1 through 3, a room that contains a monster also has treasure. A room that contains a trap has treasure on a 1 or a 2. And a room that is empty has treasure on a roll of a 1. A monster result means the DM should roll on the wandering, mon wandering monster table to determine the type present. A trap may be located in, the, in an empty room or on treasure. A special is anything not exactly a trap, but placed for special reasons. The DM should make up traps and specials, but some suggestions are given below. And they give them. So Taylor says he's using um, treasure on specials too, which is fine. I, you know, whatever. If you like to give out more experience points um, so that your characters can potentially advance more rapidly, what that's that's all, you know, a given group's preferences. And yeah, knock yourself out. So for treasure... It says, if treasure is in a room with a monster, use the treasure type for that monster, given in the monster description, to find the treasure in the room. So we know from the previous readings that, say you just encounter three hobgoblins, there's no individual treasure type listed for hobgoblins. So is this implying that you roll treasure type D, which on average, yields 4,000 gold pieces, and then you adjust that down based on the number appearing. So if the average hobgoblin lair contains, I don't know what it would be. Well, I suppose I could look here. Average hobgoblin lair. This is high... This is very exciting, I'm sure, for everyone. Number appearing 1 to 6, parentheses 4 to 24. Um, and I know the, the 4 to 24 is often like the lowest that a lair could be. So let's say there's t usually 24 hobgoblins in a lair. I mean, if you had three hobgoblins, would you divide it by 8? Or would you just say, and this is what I'm inclined to do, even though... Hobgoblins don't have an individual treasure type listed. I would probably just give them treasure type R or S, which would yield a certain amount of electrum or gold. But according to the rules, it seems to be that you'd be rolling for their actual treasure type of the monster and adjusting it based on the amount of monsters present. You could also use unguarded treasure. And that seems to be... Um, Let's see here. So, uh, if treasure is in a room without a monster, use the unguarded treasure table below. The table is used in the same way as the treasure type tables uh, found on page B45. So, 
This is what you'd use from my reading for both a room with a trap and treasure present or an empty room with treasure present. And it's based upon the dungeon level that the room is found. So, yeah, that's how procedurally treasure is determined in BX, rules as written. Um, now, of course, they, they said uh, earlier that you can just, as a DM, decide what you're going to have in the room. You know, just, you just decide how much treasure they have. And what I usually do is if I know I'm this, this cavern, this dungeon, whatever, has a hobgoblin lair, I roll what their lair treasure is and then sprinkle it throughout the various rooms that the hobgoblins occupy, with the lion's share of the treasure probably being in some trapped or guarded room or with the chieftain or something like that. But other things could be sprinkled throughout, but the, but the total value of the hoard is based upon the, the treasure type, which in a hobgoblin's case is treasure type D. And I distribute it from there. That's how I do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks for the call, Taylor. Now let's move on to Jason, see what he has to say, and we might do another reading because he brings up the example of dungeon design uh, laid out in BX, which I think is enlightening. Hey Rob, Jason here, listen to your latest episode, Gary's Appendix, Volume 1, or Issue 1, I guess. And just wanted to comment on a couple things. I'm up to Joe, Deckhedron Joe's call, but I haven't played it yet now. Or, have you know, I paused your podcast at that point. So, as far as Daniel's question, I'm not sure where he saw that. I'd have to go back through and reread BX for where it says if a wandering monster runs back to a room to use the unguarded treasure. What, what I do love in BX, though, because I got in there and looked a little bit, is when they're stocking, given the example dungeon, the Haunted Keep, and they're stocking it, you know, they make it explicit in there that you're not a um, prisoner to the tables, and, and you're not beholden to use exactly what's on the tables. When they're rolling up those rooms, and it goes through, and we're on, like, page, you know, B55, B56, B57, those areas, um, the... You know, it's got comments in there for for filling it in where, oh, well, the D, you know, the DM rolled this but determined this, and the DM decided to add a secret door here. And so it shows those t random tables are there to help you but not to handcuff you, and I really appreciate that. I mean, if you're into handcuffs, then don't get me wrong, go with that. You know, I'm not here to kink shame anybody, but I do think that the that the examples in BX are so wonderful because not only do they show, you know, hey, maybe we should parlay with the monsters to character death as possible to, you know, it's okay to deviate from the tables. I, I That's one of the reasons I just, you know, that plus the art, I, I just much prefer BX to OSE because I, I just think it's so much better done, well done, you know, but, you know, I'm a grognard in that sense. The other thing I was going to mention from your earlier stuff is now oh b10 you said you couldn't find b10 very cool that you found a player's handbook for a good price you know since you have the die cut counters 
you can get a print-on-demand copy of B10 for pretty cheap off drive-through. So that's always an option. You, you don't get the die-cut counters with the print-on-demand, but you don't need that. So maybe that's the way to go. I don't know. Okay, let me listen to your responses to Joe's call and see what's so controversial. Hmm. I hope you've got an alternate escape route. Hey, thanks for the call, Jason. I appreciate it. You know, it, I agree with your your stance that the original BX is a better rule set for teaching a new, especially DM, how to run the game than OSE is. Primarily because it came in a box that also had a scenario in it that supported the rule set. So in the in the basic Moldvay box, it not only had the the basic rules, but it had a scenario, either B1, In Search of the Unknown, or B2, The Keep on the Borderlands. And both of those scenarios were, also had extensive, like, notes on DMing the game, on fleshing out an adventure, and stuff like that. So you had kind of a blueprint. Now, that being said, I was still too impatient or dumb to really figure it out as a 13-year-old kid. But maybe most intelligent 13-year-old kids could have figured it out if they were had the patience to sit and actually read through the rules and the procedures because it is spelled out very well. And then the subsequent expert box came with the scenario Isle of Dread, X1. And that detailed not only the wilderness area of the Isle of Dread, but the known world, a campaign setting that you could, you know, put all your adventures in, right? So you had, with those two box sets, uh, enough for some creative GM to run a game for 10 years, probably. So what OSE does not have is that supporting material in like a a here's how you do it box. The other thing it doesn't have, which I agree with Jason and Daniels made this point too, are these handy examples of play and examples of procedures at work, which really tell a beginning DM how to do it. So in the um, in the basic set, and spoilers here for this I don't know, how. what is it, 45-year-old <laughs> rule set or whatever, um, uh, for the Haunted Keep. But it has an example adventure in the rule set on pages B55 through B58. And that's including uh, a map on page B57 of one of the towers of the Haunted Keep, and then on page B58 this evocative, like, cross-section of the ruins above and the caverns below, and then a key for all these different um, symbols that you'd use when you're making dungeon maps and stuff. So this was one of my favorite pages to sit and dream about as a kid. I'd look at page B58 and, and then just sit and make maps and stuff with these different symbols. Um, 
So that's something I think, you know, OSE I don't think was really directed at beginning players, someone that had never played an RPG before. I think um, someone who had an idea or at least watched some actual plays and stuff could easily figure it out. It's not like you can't figure it out, but but I do think that it would have been cool if there was like a little pamphlet that came along with the OSE box set that had these something like these examples of play that are present in especially Mold Bay Basic. Uh, and I've done readings of the the uh, sample dungeon expedition and the combat example of play in previous um, podcast recordings in the in the BX Deep Dive series. So if you want to hear those, you can go back and listen to them. If you don't have, I have a feeling most of my listeners have BX and have read those things and stuff. Um, and I think they really do kind of provide you with a snapshot or a, a a concept philosophy almost <laughs> with the expected tone and the expected outcomes or potential expected outcomes in the game by reading those examples of play. Um, and likewise, I think you can get a feel for flavor by reading this example of dungeon design, the haunted keep on page B 55 note. The section is, this section is a step-by-step example of how to design a dungeon. The Haunted Keep can help show a new DM how to design a dungeon. Part of this dungeon is already designed and enough other details are provided so the DM need not, quote, start from scratch. If this sample dungeon is to be used in play, the players should not read the following section. So if you haven't played in the Haunted Keep and you, (laughs) yeah, whatever. The letters A through F correspond to those used in the guide, page B51, and illustrate each step in turn. So this is walking through procedurally how uh, it's laying out scenario design um, in in the DM section. A, choose a scenario. In the distant past, the haunted keep was the castle of the Rotomus family. It was abandoned many years ago when the family mysteriously disappeared. It is now rumored to be haunted. Strange lights and sounds are often seen and heard in the ruins by passing townspeople. Recently, a tribe of goblins has been raiding the countryside. On their last raid, they captured a dozen prisoners. The prisoners are all relatives of the player characters who have banded together to rescue their relatives. The party has tracked the goblins to the Keeper Castle, right up to the only door in the East Tower. Most of the haunted keep is in ruins. Only two towers remain, connected by a gatehouse and only the first floors of these towers are still intact. The keep was built with rough granite blocks, now pitted with age. The door into the east tower is wooden, and one hinge is rusted through. The three paragraphs above serve as an example of the type of information that the DM might design and read to the players to give them the background of the adventure before it begins. The DM should also write notes describing the dungeon further, giving information which would not be read to the players. What the players do not know is that the Rotomus family has become a family of were-rats and still live in tunnels under their old castle. The family has joined the goblin raiders and are using them to find the strengths of the surrounding countryside. If the raids show the country folk to be weak, the family plans to raise a goblin army and attack. The players will slowly discover this information little by little as the, the adventure proceeds. 
B, decide on a setting. A keep is a kind of castle. The haunted keep has two towers connected by a gatehouse. The upper stories have collapsed, and the buildings now have only one floor. The rest of the castle is totally in ruins. The insides of the two towers should be similar, though not exactly the same. The gatehouse is split into two sections divided by what was once a main road. Then the interior of the gatehouse will be similar to the towers, though there will be fewer rooms. See the dungeon map on page B57. The catacombs, the second level of the dungeon, are a series of caverns and crypts where the Rotomus family ancestors are buried and lie under the ruins. The third level under the catacombs is the maze-like lair of the Rotomus family of were-rats. The prisoners will be scattered throughout all of the levels. However, the most important prisoners must be rescued from the center of the were-rat lair. C. Choose special monsters. Most common monsters on the first level are goblins. Other common first-level monsters are giant rats, possibly hunted by giant ferrets, bandits, and hobgoblins. Common monsters in the second-level catacombs are ghouls, zombies, skeletons, goblins, hobgoblins, and giant rats. Common monsters on the maze-like third-level are were-rats, hobgoblins, bugbears, and thules, plus at least one white and one doppelganger. Woo! D. Draw the map. To make it easier to draw the map... The towers are designed square rather than round. Since the east tower is small, the scale chosen is 1 square equals 5 feet. The first thing needed is an entrance from the first to second levels. This is a trap door in the middle of the tower, so the first room drawn is room number 4. The trap door leads to a winding staircase and eventually to the catacombs. The next area drawn is the entrance to the tower itself. The walls are 10 feet thick. Rather than have the goblins post a guard on the entrance door, a pit trap is placed in the entranceway. When the other rooms are drawn in, being careful to make sure that the player characters will have to go through several other rooms to each room number four, or to get to room number four, no matter which way they go. Finally, the DM decides to make room number four contain hobgoblins guarding two prisoners. Room number five will be the goblin barracks, and room number nine will be the goblin lookout post. Having no preference as to what monsters, treasures, or traps go in the other rooms, they are stocked at random. So... Letter E. Stock the dungeon. Room number one. First, the DM rolls a d6 to determine the room's contents. The result is a five, so the room is empty of monsters and traps. The DM rolls again to check for the treasure. The result is four, indicates that the room is none. The room is totally empty of monsters, treasures, and traps. Room number two. The DM rolls a two when checking for contents, so there are monsters present. Using the Wandering Monster table, level 1, and rolling a d20, the result of 16 indicates that there are crab spiders, treasure type U. The monster description states that 1 to 4 crab spiders normally appears. The DM rolls a 1 die 4. The result of 1 indicates that 1 crab spider is present. Rolling a d6 to check for treasure, the result of 2 indicates the treasure is present. Rolling percentage and referring to the treasure type table, these are the results. And then it breaks down each treasure type, finding that there is silver present and none other, uh, no other treasure. Separate rolls are made for gems and jewelry. The only treasure present is silver pieces. Percentage dice are rolled to determine the number, and the result of 99 means that the crab spider guards a treasure of 99 silver pieces. The DM decides that the treasure is too small for a special trap, uh... The stocking of this room is finished. Room number three. 
The DM rolls a D6 to check for content. The results of three means the room contains a trap. Rolling again to check for treasure, however, the result of one means that some booty or treasure has been determined. Rolling D percentage and using the unguarded treasure table, these are the results. Silver is always present in the unguarded treasure table, so that's there. Uh, no gold, no gems, no jewelry, but one magic item. So rolling one day six for silver pieces, the result of four indicates that 400 silver pieces are present. To determine the magic item, a roll of D percentage gives the result of 44, indicating that a potion is left with a, the trapped silver pieces. The DM rolls a D8, and consulting the potion table finds that a potion of healing is the magic item. For the trap, the DM selects a capsule of sleeping gas, which will break open when the treasure is tampered with. Room number four. The DM selects four hobgoblins to occupy this room along with two prisoners and some treasure. Rolling the chance according to the treasure, given uh, the treasure type for the hobgoblins, D, it is found that the monsters have 3,000 silver pieces and one to eight pieces of jewelry. Since only four hobgoblins are on guard out of a possible 24 or one-sixth of the possible number appearing, the number of treasure of silver pieces is reduced to one-sixth the number rolled, down to 500, and the minimum one piece of jewelry is used. Rolling 3d6 to determine its value, the result of 11 means that the piece of jewelry is worth 1,100 silver pieces. Hmm, I wonder why it's silver pieces rather than gold pieces. All right, that must be a misprint, because looking where they actually give the dungeon key under room number four, it has a neck, jeweled necklace worth 1,100 gold pieces. All right, there's a trap door in the, in the room leading to the lower levels of the dungeon. Room five, this area serves as the barracks for the goblins. No traps or treasure are indicated by the dice rolls. Number, room six, this room is empty by dice rolls of five and three. Room 7, the result of 1 indicates that a monster is present. It is determined by die type. 1d20 with a result of 7 to be 1 green slime. The roll of treasure is a 4, so there's nothing in the room but the monster. Room number 8, as with room 6, this room is found to be empty. And room number 9, 4 goblin guards are placed in this room. Dice rolls show that they have no treasure. There is, however, a secret door in the room also placed by the DM. So then it has filling in the final details. F. Now that all the rooms are stocked, it is useful to make a dungeon key and fill in final details. The key should be complete enough that it, along with the scenario, is all the DM needs to run the dungeon. When expanding the keep, the DM should create the feeling of a haunted house by adding spooky noises and some ghostly figures which appear suddenly in odd places, though harmless. Some of the place monsters should be undead, skeleton zombies and whites. The DM should be careful, however, not to unbalance the dungeon with too many undead monsters. In the following key, monsters will be presented in the standard form. Um, since saving throws of the monsters are based on character, blah, 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 blah. All right, so, that, yeah. But this gives, and then it, have, it goes on to spell everything out in this dungeon key from rooms number one, number one to nine uh, in the East Tower of the Haunted Keep. So this, and it in this, you'll find details for like where the treasure is found, um, how the trap is ind indicated, where the monster is present in the room and stuff. So this step-by-step -step 
really answers a lot of our questions about treasure placement, about how a DM goes about designing a scenario, or at least, you know, the suggest, these are suggestions for like a beginning DM, right? And I think it's a really good procedural way to do it. Even I, now having DM'd 50 years, or not 50 years, 40-some years, um, I look at this once in a while just to kind of, uh, and this is a little bit nostalgia talking, but it gets my juices flowing again, reading these old examples of play and examples of stocking a dungeon and stuff. It just kind of gets my mind working in that way again. So... Yeah, Jason, I agree that um, there's a lot of uh, tidbits like that in the Moldvay Cookmarsh BX rules that are lost in translation. Now, as far as the layout and stuff, the fact that it is two separate booklets does make it a little bit more clumsy to use at the table and as a reference. So I think... um, Something like, uh, if there ever had been a good integrated um, setup, having both BX in one volume, um, I think that would have been more more useful in general, but sadly, that never happened, and it was moved on to the uh, Menser-Beckme kind of mold. And OSE, I think, does a really good job of integrating all that stuff, updating it with a really clean design and with a really great construction. Like you, I, per- I prefer in general the art in the older editions, but, uh, you know, I'm an old grognard too. So there you have it. Now we'll move along to some calls from a new caller, if you're still with me after all of that. <laughs> it's about time you showed up. This is Dark Fluid from the Audio Dungeon Discord. This message may be coming in late and no longer relevant, but hey, thought I'd send it in anyway, so. On bugs, yeah, I definitely like what Daniel suggested, and and also just as a thing, you know, just like any spider web you find in your house, you might find the spider is, uh, spider's web has long outlived the spider, um, but there are things remaining and I think that it's uh, sort of adds some tension and everything just to use spider webs for unguarded treasure or a room with treasure and no monster you know you, you end up you know uh, creating a lair of a long dead giant spider whose victims and the armor and the remains uh, are still left behind um, and you know has that nice added bonus of tension since the uh, spiders may or may not be around and people are looking um, but also, in general, if once I get to later levels or if it's part of the campaign world, I tend to find that insect parts, venoms, spider's web, the like, uh, make good ingredients for alchemists and, and others. Um, so they may not be able to sell it in town just because they buy it, but they n- might specifically remember where they ran into some spiders earlier on or something of that nature if later on it becomes a sort of questing item they'll return to the scene of the crime and have to face these things that normally everybody hates fighting Um, but i also like the idea of trap as well now that i think of it that way that that gives me some good insight on on how to use them just treating them like traps and to me they're far more 
interesting and then a better way to engage like a, as a dungeon hazard than traps with but that's an entire another call traps mm. hey dark fluid thanks for the call i appreciate it it's never too late to chime in on a topic and this is especially apropos being we're talking about treasure placement and stocking dungeons and stuff like that and uh yeah the i'm I I like thinking of things like bugs and stuff as more like dungeon hazards, wilderness hazards and stuff like that too and making having them fall into that category. And using that as more of a category that traps are kind of part of um rather than just having all these mechanical traps littered throughout the dungeon and stuff because I do think too many traps lead to um slow methodical and sometimes boring play and the whole spider web idea that's great that's like foreshadowing things or adding little elements to dungeon rooms that are maybe otherwise empty but that give the characters pause or make them you know search through something or or give them foreshadowing of monsters presence so you could also have like shed exoskeletons or a sloughed off skin from like a giant snake or something or um or victims or whatever scat you know all kinds of different things tracks that that give you an indication that certain monsters are present and spider webs are great for that <laughs> they're also notoriously where you find all kinds of npcs or future pcs cocooned up and stuff um so that you can uh bring uh, a player back into the game quickly who's lost a character um so and and using some of these things for as you allude to ingredients or spell components or you know like spider web maybe it does something like enhances the duration or uh area of effect or something something if you have some giant spider web giant spider web as a spell component or something i mean you could you could certainly incorporate that into your game or have it as a required component for making a scroll with a web inscribed on it or something so or you know like shed exoskeleton could be crafted into a shield or some kind of crude armor or something so yeah you can have all types of things like that in your game and make it make these monsters more interesting and i do agree with you that these monsters are more interesting to engage with as players than mechanical traps partly because i'm not very good at just coming up with traps that make sense and can be solved in a logical ma um, manner by the players rather than just having them roll a die but uh, Dark Fluid's going to call back here and elaborate on traps. On traps, I get the same feeling, and I haven't found a great balance in all my years of playing. I know other people are probably better at it. To keep them from becoming too procedural or setting a standard. We enter our room and our do our standard thing, in which case, why are you even doing it? You know, it's tough to keep them from becoming ridiculously careful and 
slows down gameplay. I mean, smart players, smart adventurers would be ridiculously careful. They would be like a practice team that has routines and uh, almost uh, like uh, soldiers or special forces unit that has practiced, practiced a routine and that's how they stay alive and that's how they get through it. But look, we're playing a game here and, and at a certain point it becomes really annoying. Um, I know I've heard other people say the real key to that is to be more descriptive and evocative, giving clues to where there might be something, and then players basically learn a new skill, which is to key in on your cues as a DM that they should look for something in X position based on what they description of what they saw. But then that becomes its own sort of game within the game as well. So I just never... Not to say I don't use traps, not to say it's just never something that's felt right in general about role-playing. In some ways, it's why I kind of liked passive perception, but then that doesn't feel... Passive perception checks don't feel correct either. So, to me, it's... Uh, to me, it's kind of one of those sticking points. Yeah, lots of good stuff here. Um, it is... Traps are... A difficult part of the game for me as well and I don't think I do them very well um, as I outlined earlier I just I, I think I have trouble coming up with logical traps that could be solved via role-playing and uh, yeah the the passive perception thing makes me think I wonder if if the characters are like experienced adventurers or they outline like a procedure they do all the time First of all, I'd, I'd slow down their exploration rate. And so their consumption of resources would go up. But if they did do that, then maybe I use the find traps chance for all the characters, like entering a room and stuff. You know, the one in six chance they have to see a trap. Maybe without saying anything, you just roll that for the characters. And if if it's a trap that, like, a dwarf character would get a bonus to, they get a two and six or whatever. Um, and then you just give them a sense for you see something odd or you see something suspicious or something. And then they go about trying to discover how to bypass or disarm or whatever this trap. And of course, there's also the the note in BX that traps only spring on a roll of one to two. So these things aren't just automatically go off. Um, there's some kind of ancient mechanism or crude mechanism that just doesn't automatically work. So it doesn't, the trap doesn't automatically spring on the person that first travels the the floor or whatever that this pit trap is on. And maybe it doesn't even spring. You know, maybe you're rolling and it doesn't actually go off. But then when they come back to exit the dungeon or something, then maybe it does go off. So that can make traps a little bit more interesting when you're doing things like that. But they still, I think, in general, um, lead to play that isn't all that exciting for me. So I do use them sparingly, and I do prefer the dungeon hazard approach, incorporating different kinds of um, different kinds of things that could include traps, but aren't exclusively traps. So 
yeah, that's my two cents. The the idea that the players learn a new skill by listening to how the the uh, the DM describes things and stuff that makes a lot of sense to me too, and um, is also something that I'm probably pretty lacking in my DMing is is giving a good description of things that's also engaging and not boring. So hopefully. I, I've improved on that over the years, but I don't know if my players would concur. <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, a long episode. I'm sorry if it's been too long. If you have listened to the end, thank you. Thanks to the callers I had today. Evil Jeff um, from Minions Amusing. Joe from Hindsightless. The Pink Phantom from Phantom Thoughts. Uh Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Taylor from The Whispering GM, and Dark Fluid, who, as far as I know, doesn't have a blog or podcast, but is hanging around on the Audio Discord, uh, Audio Dungeon Discord. Um, you know, I, in closing, I do think this stuff is really important to try and come up with an approach as a DM in these old games, because... Placing treasure, as the, as the rules state, is really important. It, it represents three quarters or more, if you're playing rules as written, of the experience points awarded to the, to the players. So you, have to do, you do have to really think about it. Or at least, you know, if you follow the procedures as they're written, the rate of advancement will be about right, uh, or as intended at least. And if you tinker around with it, you're going to get a, a slower or greater rate of advancement, which, you know, that's that's great. Uh, tailor it how you like. Uh, but it's it's interesting to go back and look at the intended approaches um, uh, and maybe start from there and then mold it to how you like, right? So I hope this wasn't completely boring. If you have any thoughts... Um, opinions, or feedback on any of the things discussed today or in previous episodes, you can drop me an email at bigbalboni at gmail.com. That's B-I-G-B-A-L-B-O-N-I at gmail.com. I'm currently not on Discord, so please don't leave me messages there because I won't get them, at least not in the near future. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap. <laughs>